we come to another installment this month of our questions and answers. This, of course, the fourth Sunday in the month of September this year. And so typically on the last Sunday of the month, whatever happens to be that Sunday, the fourth or fifth one, we've tried to reserve at least in the continuation of our series of lessons on questions and answers, those which you, you ask. So in each case, you determine the topics for these particular messages. And we're always thankful to be able to allow the Word of God to provide us with some guidance at least with some pieces of information that can be of some benefit and helpfulness to us. This opening slide, as you and I come to it next, is a reminder that there's a text in Mark eleven twenty nine, in which you might recall that there were some scribes and some elders and some chief priests which came to Jesus and they said, we want to ask you a question. And the Lord said, I'll answer your question if you'll answer mine. Our Savior was in the business of asking questions when it was pertinent and when it was appropriate and when it was a matter that could be useful in terms of encouraging others to understand and appreciate the truth of the things God had revealed. And so tonight, we're going to look at some questions and answers as well. As we do that, as, as usual, I'll try to read these particular questions so that I word them in the way that would be fitting. And this opening question reads like this. What does it mean to lift up holy hands in prayer? Does this teach that the hands should be lifted upward in prayer? That's a very good question. In fact, as you reflect upon that question with me, you'll notice that there's certainly some degree of consideration in regard to it. Would you be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 2? There's the place where we find wording that connects identically to that question. In fact, it's found in verse number 8, and it's the first verse that Brother Greg read in our hearing just a few minutes ago. In fact, as you revisit that verse, it reads like this. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. There are those thus who would take the position that perhaps based on that text... It would be entirely proper and right to have the hands uplifted in prayer. After all, is that not what it says? Well, is that what it says? In fact, is that what the God of heaven demands? Is that what He expects? As you and I journey our way through that slide, I'm going to ask that we do it this way. Let's merely take that verse somewhat slowly, element by element. And as we look at that which is presented, our simple desire is to put those matters back together in a way consistent with not only the teaching here, but the teaching that you and I find in the Word of God in a host of places. The first two words of the verse, I will. You and I know that the word I is making reference at that particular moment to, of course, the author who is the Apostle Paul. As Paul makes these inspired directives to Timothy, who again was stationed at Ephesus, and who was going to carry on the labor and the work in preaching the gospel there. It might be interesting that you appreciate the Greek verb that here appears. It means to will deliberately. It has behind it the thought of to be minded to accomplish that which is under discussion. It is clearly expressive of the will of God. After all, when you and I read about the writings of Paul or Peter or James or the others, we understand that as they were presenting forth that which they wrote, it was expressive of what the Holy Spirit guided them to write, just as we noticed this morning. In other words, Paul wasn't merely couching this assertion in what his preference would be. 
After all, you notice in the previous verse it says, I'm ordained a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Paul thus pointed out as an apostle he had seen the Lord, and in Galatians 1, 10, and 11, he pointed out there that that which he had received, he did not receive it by revelation of men. It was by revelation of heaven. When he thus says, I will, this is understanding of the point that when we read his writings, he says, those who appreciate that which I say will understand that I speak with the command of God. Paul says to this congregation, again, through Timothy, I will. Not only that. You may now notice that you can quickly notice a few other verses wherein this sense of I will is found. In Matthew 1 verse 19 there, it was in relation to Joseph. Remember, Mary had been found pregnant though she hadn't been with Joseph yet. And yet the text says Joseph was minded to put her away privately. Same word here that appears in the Greek. Thus, Joseph made determination that in privacy I will simply put Mary away and not make a public spectacle of her. Here Paul says, I will, meaning that it's expressive of that which is the intent of what is appropriate, that which certainly would be expected. As you and I look even forward, though, what follows those two words? I will, therefore... Therefore is quite often, in fact, virtually always used as a word of conclusion. In light of the premises previously stated, and in light of the facts which had been earlier presented, this is now the expectation. What are the earlier facts? Verse 1, prayer, supplications, and giving of thanks to be made for all men, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Not only that, verse 5, you and I notice there, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In addition to that, you notice in verse 6, it's this same one, namely Jesus, that gave himself a ransom for all. In light of truths mentioned like that, I will therefore. But then it says that men pray everywhere. Men pray everywhere. This would be a great time for us, as I've invited you to notice. There's a rather fundamental observation to be made here. And it goes like this. There are two different words that are quite often interpreted and translated as the word men. Now, this is probably not the least bit surprising to us upon some degree of reflection. But there are some places wherein you and I will see the word man or men. And it really means mankind. And thus... It includes women as well as males. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Well, does that mean we only preach to males? Of course not. That word that's translated men there is anthropos. It means a human being. It's just as, it's just as inclusive of a woman as it is a man. In other words, it just means a human being. Another example would be 1 Timothy 2.5. It's the one you and I just noted a few moments ago where it says, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Do women have a mediator? Does that verse only mean that the male has a mediator? Of course not. That's the word anthropos. It means the, a person who's a member of the human family, men as well as women.
But there's another Greek word, and it's not anthropos. It's aner. In English, it looks like A-N-E-R, aner. And it means a male in complete contrast to a female. It means a male. May I point out, that's the word that occurs in verse 8. I will therefore that males pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Here, it's not anthropos. It's not just a member of the human family. It's a male member of the human family. And Paul, by that inspired presentation, reveals to us that it's thus the expressive will of God that men, males, pray everywhere. There are several things that likely would immediately appear as a question. First of all, you and I know it isn't wrong for a woman to pray. In fact, all of us are admonished as Christians to be people of prayer. So what does Paul mean by this? It would seem very clearly that he means those that would have the authority position in the leading of the public prayers. In other words, a woman can pray in private. She and her house, you would expect a Christian woman to pray. But what we notice is that in these public assemblies, Paul says, I will that men pray everywhere. As you reflect on the verse, it's notice it says everywhere. You notice thus, this is not anything cultural. Everywhere will be inclusive of every nationality and every place on the surface of this planet. There's nowhere where this is not the correct course of action. Paul says, I will that men pray everywhere. Thus, the matter of leading these prayers is thus directly given as responsibility to the males when it comes to these places, again, attached to what's under discussion here. Let's read on further. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, and now the next four words, lifting up holy hands. My suspicion is you've never seen the gentleman leading our prayers in public stand here like this. I'd be surprised if you did. What then does this mean? There are those in our world who take this rather suggestively that it really is the proper course of action. Is that what it means? The first thing I would point out is this. Note again the language, if you would. We've just learned in the opening two verses, the first two words, that is, I will, Paul wrote, that men pray everywhere. It would seem thus that logically, and by way of appreciation, there can be no doubt about this. In other words... If that's what the verse means, it's wrong if a man doesn't do it. What does it mean? If it is the will of God that men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands, then what does this verse mean? You'll notice on that slide, could I ask you to now give some attention to this phraseology, lifting up holy hands. First of all, we find a few passages in the Word of God that shed light on and cast a spotlight on some of the things that we recognize here. May I offer yet another thought? The first thing we could quickly say, again, this isn't cultural. The words everywhere have already eliminated it. But and it also true that as this is highlighted, the very statement that appears a bit later, just a few verses later, reminds us that the presentation rests upon not what was appropriate to ancient Ephesus, 
but was much more broad than that. In fact, look at what's at the bottom of that slide. As you and I have just learned, is this the posture of prayer? If a man has to pray like this, may I ask a thought then, how did Paul and Silas pray like that in Acts 16? They were in prison. They were shackled. I doubt they could have prayed that way. Their hands weren't loose enough to let them pray that way. And what about someone that had their arm amputated because they were in an accident? They would be unable to pray like that if that's what it means. May I suggest to you, it is not that that's what it means. That's not what this is indicating. Lifting up holy hands. In fact, as you look at the next slide with me, could you already appreciate with me some of these additional conclusions? First of all, could I point out that in Psalm 24, 4, in the Old Testament era, you and I recall that David had much to say about those who stood in an approved place before God and their hands were clean. Does that mean they had just recently washed with soap? Of course not. What that meant was is they had lived a life in such a way that they were able in a tone of righteousness to appear before God. They weren't those living in sin, as if they were habitually living in a way that would be a rebellious one toward God. In fact, that's only one time among a host of others that might be noted. In Lamentations 3.41, Jeremiah thus said, Let us lift up our hearts with our hands unto God in the heaven. Now we know he isn't literal. You can't take your heart out of your body and lift it up to God that way. But what he's highlighting is we as a nation, he would write, have sinned. We have erred against God, and it is our desire to turn our attention back to the God of heaven and to openly come before him in the sense of lifting up ourselves honestly and earnestly and openly before him and striving to listen with care to what he says and live the way he wants. Lamentations 3.41 out to the side, I've asked you to notice Psalm 119, verse 48, where there again the hands are mentioned in the sense of making a desirable presentation to God and it is often presented in a way that highlights an openness before God. Let's go back to 1 Timothy 2, 8. Lifting up holy hands, and now the last few words of the verse modify that which we've already noted. Without wrath and doubting. What that verse is reminding us is, is that gentleman who leads us in prayer needs to be living a life of exemplary Christianity. He can't be given to open sin. Our elders shouldn't ask someone like that to lead our prayers. That's why we're a bit cautious and careful even during gospel meetings and other activities when visitors come they're mindful about who they're willing to ask to lead us in prayer. You do not want a gentleman standing here whose life is not representative of the thing for which he's attempting to lead us in prayer. And this verse teaches that. Without wrath and doubting, shouldn't be a man given to openness in terms of wrath and questioning things concerning God, but a man who believes with confidence, James chapter 1, verses 5 and following, for let not... Let not that man that doubteth think that he'll receive anything of the Lord. 
a man who, based on a life of holiness and godliness, can lead us so that at the conclusion of that prayer, we can appreciate an amen. This verse, as you and I have noted it so far, has nothing to do with a posture of prayer. Nothing to do with literally lifting up the hands to God that way. It is a reference to the character and the disposition of the life of the one who's leading us in prayer. And aren't we thankful for those kind of presentations? It might be entirely fair to say, as you notice here at the bottom of that slide, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those words from the lips of Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 8, still remind us that the pure in heart, that gentleman who is earnestly striving with, with great diligence to live a life not only for himself, but a blessing to his family and others as well. That's the kind of gentleman that we want leading us in prayer. That's the kind of one who can, in fact, touch us with the earnestness and the honesty of that which he says. As you close that particular slide with me, and we close this opening question, what we've attempted to do is look at the verse that's often utilized to at least encourage some thought relative to that, but it is not referring to the lifting up literally of the hands in that context. It's referring again to the character and disposition of the life upon which that person, of course, certainly making choice to live. The next question for the night will be this one. Let me turn our slide to that question. In fact, it will rest somewhat upon the same context, but it reads like this. In some cultures, women have a more pronounced leadership role in everyday matters than is the case here in America. In places such as this, is it right for women to have a pronounced leadership role in the work and worship of the church? You can again perhaps appreciate the tenor of the question, and it is a true assertion the person made. There are cultures and there are particular nations wherein it is the expected thing that a woman actually is those occupying the roles of leadership. You remember the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 and following? There was an ancient empire where it was regarded a queen was the leader, not a king. So what about today? Suppose there's an African nation or perhaps an African tribe where in that local tribe... Women do all the leadership. They're the leaders of the tribe. They make the decisions as to the ongoing activities, and they make the decisions relative to what and when things are done. So if our missionaries proceed to teach those people, would it then be right for the women to preach in those congregations? Would it be appropriate for the women to lead the public prayers? That's a good question. As you and I come to that question, we're going to use in many ways a context related to the one we just noted. And I began to ask you to step through that in some of the ways that you'll notice on that slide. You and I gave attention to verse 8 somewhat slowly a moment ago. May we jump a few verses forward and begin in verse 11 of the same chapter. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. 
And that reading takes us through the 14th verse of that same chapter. And it basically brings back before us some thoughts that will touch in a rather direct way the issues concerning this question that's now before us. The first thing that we might note, and it's the first one that I've asked you to appreciate there as well. Does culture determine, does culture dictate the specifics of the business of the church? the specifics of the worship and the overall character of activity of the body of Christ. That question is so fundamental. And that question is so directive that it shall occupy most of our discussion in the remainder of the evening. But at least back to this one, let's just ask, what again does the text say? Quite often this phrase, let, is taken and presented in Greek in such a way that it is a commandment. For example, in Hebrews 10 and verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Is that optional? It doesn't come out and say, thou shalt provoke one another to love and good works. But it's phrased in this way of let us do this. And just as surely as that's presented there, those who have studied intensely the Greek as it's used in Hebrews and other places remind us that that is equivalent to a commandment. Well, what about a text like this one? Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. It begins with let, and as it's presented this way, it's a reminder that this is the inspired Word of God. It is not our interest to then cast upon it what modern interpretation might otherwise say. It goes on to say, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. You and I have often noted in light of ancient Ephesus, as well as some of the other cities of the ancient Roman Empire, that there was a rather pronounced place of women. Do you recall our studies in Corinth? And what was the case concerning them in 1 Corinthians 11? Same scenario. Very, very similar. And yet Paul admonished them in a very directive fashion. And here we find something comparable. I suffer not a woman to teach. I don't permit it. It is not that which is allowed. That wording presents before us the thought then that she is not to usurp authority. There are some who would be quick to say, well, let's face it, if a man gives her that authority, she has not taken it from him by force. She hasn't usurped in that case, has she? He gave her that opportunity. But could we ask, from the God of heaven, did the man have the opportunity and the right to give her that authority? Based on a verse like this, well, the answer is no. In other words, you and I notice that as Paul penned these inspired words, I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but rather to be in silence. And so surely we can appreciate that there's no cultural restriction on the fact that Timothy, because of the current state of affairs in Ephesus, allow me to give you a piece of advice that could be helpful. As long as you're aware of the fact that others need not abide by it, that is not what we find. In fact, as this is presented, isn't it very similar to in fact, identical to what we find in 1 Corinthians 14. Isn't it that which we see that was consistent with the teaching in other places? In fact, as you look again at the text, Paul even gives us the reasoning. 
He provides for us a foundation, a basis. Might we take note of the fact it would not have been necessary for your belief in mine had He given us the basic reasons. We would have simply agreed that it was the will of God and would have done it. But He does provide to us in verse 13 and 14 the following explanatory words. The word for in verse number 13 is a word that carries the thought of a conjunction in the sense of explanation. It says, for Adam was first formed, and then Eve. Aren't you impressed with this thought? The anchor upon which Paul rests this conclusion has nothing to do with culture. This has been the way it was since the very creation. Since the very scene of events in Eden, since the very consideration the man was formed first, and then Eve... And then he adds this to it in verse 14. When it came to what took place in Eden, the woman was the one that was deceived. It was not the man. And based on those two observations and those two truths that have been that way since Genesis, this is why I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. Don't you and I find it intriguing? That is the furthest thing from anything that's culturally connected. That's true regardless what culture, regardless what continent, regardless what place or time. That has been true since there were only two individuals on the planet. In other words, this is not cultural. If a missionary were to find a tribe in Africa for which the women were the recognized and ongoing leaders, it would be incumbent to teach with care and with tact and with kindness the issues connected to texts such as this one, helping them to appreciate that it is the will of God that the males lead the public prayers, as we noted in verse 8. And furthermore, that the males do the public preaching and that they are the ones over whom the woman does not usurp authority. That would be what's consistent with the Word of God. Rather fascinating as you close verse number 14 then is the issue, and shouldn't this be a reminder to us, that apparently that consideration of thought was a troubling matter in Ephesus of the ancient era. Isn't it amazing? It still troubles the Lord's church. It still troubles various and sundry kinds of considerations. The first thing you and I can note is culture has nothing to do with that which we've studied so far tonight. As you close that particular slide with me, what if then we ask this question? What if it were the case that culture is allowed to dictate the particulars of service to God and the circumstances concerning the way in which that service will be carried out? The first thing you and I could quickly say, in that case, it's not the commandments of God that would be the dictating force. It would be the culture and the perceptions of men. And that would fly right in the face of Matthew 15, verses 7, 8, and 9. As you and I close that particular question, only one more for our study together tonight. And that question is this one. Are the elements of worship determined by the culture of where the worship takes place? That's another good question. If I could phrase it somewhat differently. 
What about the particulars, the elements, the circumstances connected to worship? Is it the case that culture is the primary or at least a significant determining factor? You may often hear presentations or at least thoughts of those who are preachers of some form or another who will often make arguments about the fact that things that are done must be guided by the culture else the people cannot fully engage in it. That simply isn't true. When you and I read about the Gentile churches of the New Testament, they often were brought right into an assembly that was regarded from history as a Jewish one. They had met at the synagogue. Did Paul and Peter and James and John and the other New Testament writers, did they thus offer to those circumstances, Gentiles, you can contrive your own worship, though you may meet at the same place. You don't have to do the same things they do. You need to do what allows you to engage fully in worship. Do we read that anywhere? Is there even a slightest hint in any verse to that effect? Absolutely not. In fact, in Ephesians 2, verses 14 and following, Paul gave a description, an inspired description of one body in Christ, and we do the same thing they do. We've been reconciled into one body. It's not that we do something different than you, that your history, your personality, your background leads you to do something different. We have been melded together in one body. In Romans 15, 6, Paul said, We, in one mouth and one body, we proclaim and speak that which is of God. And that congregation we know was made of both Jews and Gentiles, at least historically, because it's often mentioned in the text of that Roman letter. Whether it be Rome, whether it be the congregation that we just noted at Ephesus, there was never the slightest allowance that culture could determine and dictate something other than what the God of heaven had revealed. And therefore, they spoke to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Titus and others preached with all authority, Titus 2.15. And we understand that they blessedly observed the Lord's Supper. In fact, even in Troas, completely separate place in Acts 20, verse 7, the brethren came together to break bread. And what a joyous moment it was. They gave, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, as they had been prospered, and they gave every first day of the week. And then interestingly, they met to give attention because Paul preached to them. In the course of their reflection on the Word of God, they had someone like Paul or Peter or someone else to preach to them the blessed news of the gospel. When you and I thus give thought to this matter of worship, and whether or not culture can dictate it, we find culture is not the determining factor. I believe it's often been a matter of great encouragement to us to think then about our brethren in various and sundry places around the world, perhaps many, many years in the past, doing the same things that we do. Some of the features about these observations tonight have really been a reminder that the Word of God addresses what is needful and appropriate in every circumstance and in every situation. 
no one needs to be concerned about thus making some decision to allow the culture to dictate or determine otherwise. As you and I come then to some of the last thoughts on this third question, I wanted to highlight one of the verses that surely must be a matter of some thrust at this point. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. That text of Colossians 3.17 perhaps only serves to remind us about passages which I've asked you to notice on that slide. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. I beseech you therefore, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. There is to be a unity, a harmony, a togetherness, and that immediately challenges us in light of some of the things we observe today. There are congregations, for example, not that far from here, which have two rather distinct kinds of services. There are those on Sunday morning that may meet in an early hour for what they call a traditional worship service. Then that service will conclude. And then, a bit later in the morning, a contemporary worship service will take place at the same building. At that early service, it was a cappella singing. At that early service, it was a service which you and I would rather strongly recognize. But then at that later service, which they would also claim is highly endorsed by the Bible, suddenly now there's a band on stage. There may be ladies leading the prayers. May I suggest to you, these who would thus feel as if these are merely two opportunities for people to engage in acceptable worship to God, and such is only nonsense. It's only a delusion. Can that second service be said to be under the authority of Christ, in which all things are supposed to be done by His authority, Colossians 3.17, when He has not authorized it? You and I recognize then that a congregation that moves in, in a direction such as this is not only moving in a way that's wrong, it's in a way that encourages division. It encourages a separation, not unity. It encourages a disparate character between various members of that congregation. And it even encourages those to engage in what is not right. You and I notice then that the Word of God is all authoritative. It is that upon which we must rely without any reliance upon other sources of information, be it our feelings, be it our preferences, be it the culture of the day, None of that makes any difference. You and I have a desire then to simply ask, What saith the Scripture? And tonight we've attempted to at least address these questions that have been asked in light of certain opportunities. The way the person phrased that last question, Are the elements of worship determined by the culture of where the worship takes place? Isn't it easy to imagine that if the answer to that is yes... If it is the case, then, that culture is a significant determining factor, then what is outlawed? What if it's acceptable to bring your pet to worship and let the pet take the Lord's Supper? Is that okay? What if it's acceptable in any number of other ways to engage in things like that or otherwise? 
may I point out that if one could make the claim that our culture, our particular way of doing things ought to dictate to God what he will receive, then we have become the God and he has become the servant. And that's just plain wrong. We love to worship him because we are thankful he has told us what he wants. That's what pleases him. Shame on anybody that would think that we can enforce upon him what he will receive. When the ancient people of Israel tried that in Amos chapter 5, God said, I will not receive it. And in the days of Malachi, he said, I will not receive it. And in Isaiah chapter 1, he said, I will not receive it. I don't know how much plainer that could be. When Israel tried it, God didn't accept it. Today, do we suppose that He then will accept that which is different than what He said He wants? Oh, surely we should not anticipate that. But tonight, as we close this lesson, it is certainly the case that culture wages a significant battle against the ongoing purity of the activities of the church. And I suppose it's always going to be that way because culture has its own mentality and it has its approved way of what it regards as acceptable. But so often what culture would affirm as what's acceptable, God says, that is abomination in my sight. Luke 16, verse 15. And thus, you and I are not going to rely on culture. Here is as far as we'll go, determining, you see, what we shall do in service to the God of heaven. Brother Don has chosen a song of encouragement tonight, and we're going to stand in just a moment and sing that together. And as we do that, we're being reminded about the urgency and the clarity and the clearness of the teaching of the Bible. And aren't we thankful that it is the anchor of the soul, Hebrews 6.19. And in that way, it is the very thing to which we can turn, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. If you and I would thus be perfect, mature, and complete, it is this book to which we must turn as the only source. Tonight, if we could be of some assistance to anybody, in a public way, of course, perhaps to confess error of things done, we'd be honored to encourage you and help you. As a wayward child of God, you could come home. May I be quick to say, it may not be error in particular. You may just be facing particular challenges in life, and you would just like prayers of this congregation, that you might meet those challenges with wisdom and meet those challenges with strength. We'd be happy to pray for you in that context as well. If there's someone that hasn't become a Christian, and you know that you need to be, then tonight, what better night could there be? Would you not... Make affirmation of your belief in Jesus. Repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized. And if we could be of some assistance to you tonight in any of these ways, we'd like to do it. While together we stand and while we sing.